Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. Our guest today is Dave McCormick, who is the co-CEO of Bridgewater Associates. Bridgewater is the largest hedge fund in the world. They manage over $150 billion in assets. Before joining Bridgewater, Dave served as the Undersecretary of International Finance at the Treasury Department. He also served in the Bush White House as the De- Deputy National Security Advisor and at the Commerce Department as Undersecretary. Uh, Dave also had a great career as a CEO, and he is a published author. Enjoy the conversation. So, Dave, thanks for joining me in Washington. I appreciate it. This is a bit of a road game for you coming to our, our offices at Carlisle, but, but thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start with when you first came to Washington in 2005. You were president of a software company, and then you decided to leave and go into government. You took a job as undersecretary at the Department of Commerce. What was your thinking around that? How did that decision come about? Well, I had, um, I had had a chance to help a little bit on the, on the Governor Bush's campaign. And um, uh, Bob Kamet had made some introductions, and I got got involved on the defense policy side, and I had helped help him a couple things, and and didn't uh, didn't come into government in the first term uh, for lots of reasons, both both professional and um, and personal. I also wasn't actually asked to come in, uh, but when uh, I sold uh, the company that I was running in Pittsburgh uh, and went to Ariba, um, I had to stay there for at least a year. And I stayed there for the year, and then at the end of the year, it coincided with President Bush winning a second term, and um, a couple friends reached out and asked whether I'd be interested, and I got in the middle of the personnel process and ultimately was uh, fortunate enough to land at the Commerce Department. Once you were a Commerce, it was interesting. It, it looks like within you know a year or so, you decided to move over to the White House, where you were Deputy National Security Advisor, and then from the White House, you went to the Treasury Department as Undersecretary. I want to come back later to your time at Treasury, but I'm curious about that move from the White House NSC to Treasury. How, how did you think about that, and what were the differences between those, those two jobs? Well, I had gone to the Commerce Department um, in part because I'd been in the technology world, national security and technology, and the job I had was focused on that. And one of the things that that, uh, that was a hot topic at the time was, uh, like, like today, technology trade with China. And exporting of our sensitive technology to China was was the topic, and so as a consequence of that, I had a chance to brief uh, in the White House uh, for several principals meetings where I would come over and with Secretary Gutierrez and brief um, you know various cabinet members, and including St- and Steve Hadley would be there and Al Hubbard and so forth. And uh, Fariar uh, left, and the Sherpa job opened. And, uh, and I was asked whether I'd interview for that, and I, um, it caught me by surprise. I'd only been at Commerce for probably six or seven months, and, uh, and I was asked uh, to, to do that job by Steve Hadley and, uh, and Al Hubbard. It was a dual report to both of them. And I, I never imagined um, that I didn't know President Bush. I hadn't been close in the campaign, so I, didn't, I never really had thought that working in the White House was a possibility, and it, uh, it just sort of came out of nowhere, and I couldn't imagine having missed that opportunity, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then how about the move to Treasury from there? What, what, what was your thinking around 
that move and how well, that comes out. You know, that also uh, came a bit out of uh, out of left field because I was uh, as the Sherpa role in the White House. I had a chance to work on the economic agenda of the president and spend a good bit of time with him, but also a number of the other cabinet members, including Secretary Paulson. And after Secretary Paulson had been there for a couple months, he had literally asked a number of other people whether they would take the undersecretary job for international. And um, for a variety of reasons, I've since learned this, for a variety of reasons, those other, <laughs> so you were the last pick oh, in the I draft. I was definitely not the first. <laughs> I was definitely, there was a long line and I was at the, I was at the end of the line. But he asked me about that and uh, whether I'd take it. And my first reaction was, I, I don't, I don't really know about markets, so I don't think I'd be a good candidate because I, well, my, you know, I've run this company and I've been in the military, but I was not a markets person. And he said, uh, I'm not looking for that. Uh, he said, for that role, you know how the White House works because you've been here. Um, you know a lot of the economic policymakers because of your role as Sherpa, and um, and the, the other things you need to know, you can learn. And and so, uh, I thought, what a great opportunity, Bob Kimmet. Um, who had been a mentor and a friend for many years, was the deputy. And he had really helped encourage Hank, I think, and also me to, to, to take this job. And so I was really honored to be able to do it. Now, let's go back now and figure out, I want to hear the path how you got to, to Treasury. So you, you grew up in uh, Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and as from my research, it looks like you, you have a brother who uh, is also in finance. And like yourself, your brother was a wrestler. So you were a all-state wrestler in high school. You went on to West Point where you wrestled. You know, in the McCormick household when you were boys, you know, did the two of you just, like, beat on each other constantly? Oh, and there was, and there, who was the better wrestler? There's long history. Well, he was younger and smaller. So uh, so he, he was on the receiving end for, uh, for, for many years. But, uh, but we, played, we both played sports, and uh, I, we, hadn't, we hadn't any military in our family. And so uh, – uh, I got recruited to play football and wrestle at West Point, and my dad really encouraged me to apply. He said I didn't have to go, but really encouraged me to apply. And so, to my surprise, I got in, and uh, that was uh, a real decision all of a sudden because I hadn't really wanted to be in the military, but in my small town, there hadn't been anybody that had gone to the academies for two decades. And so, it all of a sudden was a big deal. And uh, and so I, all of a sudden I started to think about it seriously, even though it's, it's a nine-year commitment because you have four years of college and the military service, and, uh, and I went. And I can't imagine having not done that. It really changed, changed my life. My brother then subsequently followed four years later, and I did fine at West Point. My brother was better at everything. He was first in his class. Well, he, you can't admit that. I have a little brother. You can never admit no, that no, your little brother did this better. Was, this was so obvious, it's undeniable that he was better at everything. And uh, – to, to the point, at one point when I was out in the Army, a year or two in the Army, and my brother was excelling at West Point, my dad pulled me aside and said, what was going – were you not focused? You know, <laughs> what, what, was, what was the issue? And, uh, and anyway, he, he now lives here in D.C., so we're, we're good pals. And uh, as you mentioned, you, went, you, you were at West Point where you were incredibly successful. You were a four-year letterman on the wrestling team. You ultimately graduated and went into the 82nd Airborne at, at Fort Bragg. Uh, and had a, a very distinguished career in the military. You were one of the first uh, deployments in the Iraq War in 1990. You won a Bronze Star Medal. Looking back on it, two questions. One, what was your most sort of impactful experience, your most memorable experience? And two, how did your time in the military inform your, your leadership style today? The moment that is most in my mind, I'm not sure it was the most impactful in terms of my future, but the moment that was most in my mind 
was uh, the invasion into Iraq and um, the night before with the, the troops in my unit, we were on the Iraqi border and, uh, and writing letters uh, that you would give to your pal so if something happened, um, they would pass that letter on to your family. And, um, and it's, it's hard to remember, but at the time, the predictions were like 50,000 casualties and there were Scud missiles with chemical weapons. And so that was the moment where I, I sort of thought that you know, there was a real possibility of, um, of, of really significant casualties and possibly you know, uh, injury or death. And that, was a, that brought a lot of focus to the purpose of the military and the responsibility that goes with having leadership positions, not just in the military, but in the government. But but for me at that moment, particularly in the in the uh, in the in the military, and that made all the parades and the West Point and the training over many years. It just brought it all into focus. Wow, this is so consequential. It's so important, and um, the responsibility is so great. Two things that fit into that. That that all took me by surprise and really my family by surprise to some degree. The first thing that happened was my senior year at West Point, I blew out my knee. I was an engineer at West Point, and I blew out my knee in the second semester of senior year, so I couldn't deploy, I couldn't go to my unit. So I had a six-month delay, and I spent that six months at West Point. And um, during the time, the GI Bill was available, so I could take graduate classes um, while I was there for that six months. So I enrolled at Columbia, and I took two classes. And um, one of them was in international affairs with a man named Roger Hillsman, who was this unbelievable character who had been a West Point gradu graduate, had uh, finished West Point early to deploy to World War II, had been in the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, and, um, and then had deployed to Burma and fought behind enemy lines, and then got out and did a PhD, and then subsequently served as an assistant secretary of state in the Kennedy administration, and then a professor. And I remember sitting in that class thinking, what a life. That guy has had this incredibly interesting life and at the intersection of academia and military and so forth, and that stuck with me. The second thing that happened was when I was, uh, came back from the Gulf War, the military, or the Army, um, asked me uh, to go back to West Point and teach. But um, the first thing, I had I volunteered for Korea, so I was gonna go to Korea for a year and then go to graduate school and then go back and so while I was waiting to go to Korea, I applied to graduate schools. And you had to write the applications, and the applications were always, what do you want to do with your life? And the essays never ended with, I want to be an Army officer. They ended with other things. And so it really forced me to think about um, what I was going to do. And so I unexpectedly, I had, you know, told the Army I was going to Korea. I told my parents I resigned from the Army. And um, this was in... Uh, November of 1991, and uh, I had all this leave and so forth because I'd been uh, in the war, and I also had all this back pay. And so I sent the letters to college for graduate school, but they didn't uh, accept ex except for September. On the following year, so I had almost a year off. And I bought a ticket, which was an around-the-world TWA ticket for $5,000, and the only rule was you had to go in the same direction. You could have as many flights as long as you went in the same direction. And I traveled for the next eight months in the Middle East and Asia uh, by myself. I met people along the way I traveled with. And that was a defining experience before I went back to grad school. What was your favorite spot on the journey? 
you know, my favorite spot was uh, two, two. One uh, was Syria. So I went to Syria. I went over through Turkey and into Syria, and I spent a couple weeks in Syria. And Syria, it's tragic what's happened now. It was these incredible cities, Aleppo and Damascus, these unbelievable history that was thousands of years, castles outside of Damascus. So that was one. And the other was Thailand. And Thailand was incredible and beautiful, and northern Thailand in particular. Um, so I spent, you know, these great. Ad- it was a great adventure in places that I would have never gone otherwise. Very cool. So you ultimately graduate from Princeton with your PhD. You later turned your thesis into a book, The Downsized Warrior, and you joined the consulting firm McKinsey and Company for a couple of years. And then to me, as I, I look at your career, it seems like the really big move was leaving McKinsey and going into, at the time, you know, a technology software business. It was early 2000s. Technology was really hot like it is today. And that seemed to really set you on a, a different path. Well, that was a that was a... Yeah, it was a really exciting time, as, as you say, a lot like today where there were these technology companies that were really going through the roof. And I worked at McKinsey in the industrial space. So I would work in these, you know, old uh, manufacturing companies, automotive, steel companies, because I was in the Pittsburgh office. And there was this little startup company that had been started by a couple of McKinsey guys that um, uh, had a business where they essentially created online auctions for direct materials so the the manufactured components that went into you know and and goods like automobile or something like that and so they showed up at one of my uh, clients and through an introduction from us came in and they created in front of us this online market where you saw the suppliers um, bidding for business from the buyer and all the suppliers could see one another so you all of a sudden in these industries where people were making buying decisions, procurement decisions based on who they went golfing with or the supplier they've had for 20 years, and you really even couldn't see the difference in the price, all of a sudden that there was transparency on where the market price really was, and there was dramatic savings, like 20, 30 percent. And this, at the time, the company was, I don't know, 25 people or something like that, and I was just Taken did you know somebody there? How did you get lined up with these guys? Well, they worked. They came in and worked with one of our clients, and then they had known about me from my time at McKinsey, and they were former McKinsey guys. So I, I, they, you know, they, they had heard of of the work that I was doing, and so they asked me whether I wanted to join, and I, you know, I said, uh, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I could see the power of the idea, and so I joined. I had this charismatic founder who was a big visionary who had quit his job at McKinsey and essentially funded the business on his credit card for the first year. And I went and worked with him for a couple years and then he stepped out and became the chairman and I became the CEO. And I uh, and we, we grew it and we took it public and it became a you know pretty significant success. It became a, a really good success, but you also led the company through a difficult time, right? The dot-com bubble burst, you know, 9-11 happened. Uh, and you ultimately then sold that company to another acquirer and stayed on. Uh, you know, you were starting a family. There was a, a lot going on at that time. As you look back on that time, uh, you know, how how did you really adapt and survive during that? Because it, th- it was not an easy time to be running a tech business in the early 2000s. That was a crazy 2000s. time. You know, I think that's one of the great things you would ask about Westman. I think that's one of the great things about the military, at least for me, was that the experiences at West Point and Ranger School and, and the Gulf War, those, um, that, that responsibility, the seriousness of uh, some of those situations, it sort of puts everything in perspective. 
And so while I was certainly very stressed and we all felt a huge responsibility for the company, we could put that in perspective. And, um, and the thing I learned in, in that particular experience and the thing I've since learned is um, there's usually always a way out of a tough situation. It's probably not apparent to start with, and you may need to draw in others to unlock what that way is. But um, you know, we were in a tough situation, and there was ultimately a way out. And uh, and, the, and the company, and you know, the acquired company ended up being very successful, and that turned out to be a great winning story for everybody. Although at various moments, it felt like it was going to be a pretty tough, tough to make it successful. And, and where were you on 9/11? I was uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, in uh, we had we had a skyscraper building on the skyscape uh, in Pittsburgh, and we were all on the top floor for a big uh, company event, and we got the word about the twin towers, and we all went down to look watch the, watch the television, and uh, and then believe it or not, I know this sounds crazy, but there was reports that a plane was near Pittsburgh, because ultimately one did crash um, outside of Pittsburgh, and so. Um, you know, all, we had all our employees from around the world who were in Pittsburgh, and you know, many of them were stuck there for a number of weeks because they couldn't get home after uh, you know all the the flights were canceled and disrupted and so forth. So it was a scary moment. Yeah, and w with your background, it was probably particularly impactful when, when that happened. And ultimately, you did decide to go into government, as we talked about in the beginning. Uh, after Commerce in the White House, you went to Treasury. You were at Treasury in a very senior role during the financial crisis. Talk a little bit about your role at Treasury and particular that time of the financial crisis and, and how your military career and your time at, at, in the private sector prepared you for what you had to deal with. I'm not sure anyone was really prepared for that uh, because it was such a, you know, it was, it was such a tsunami of one unexpected event after another. I think the you know, when I try to describe it to my kids now, because my kids have absolutely no recollection of any of this, uh, when I try, try to describe it to my kids, it didn't, I, I don't think this, the significance of what we were all dealing with was apparent until fairly far along in the game. And so things were happening like Bear Stearns, uh, and things were happening like Fannie and Freddie, and things were happening like ultimately Lehman Brothers, and the totality of the risk and the significance for the economy um, were, um, you know, were just hard to process until it became very clear in the fall of 2000, 2008. And, um, and I say the way I would describe it is uh, really having an appreciation for the quality of the people we had at that moment and the significance of having the right leaders in a time of crisis. So I give enormous credit to President Bush for his leadership during that time, um, his willingness to sort of isolate the policymakers um, from the political pressures. I, more than once, I would hear him say to uh, Ben and to Hank, you just do the right thing. I'll take care of the politics. And his confidence that the most important decision he could make was picking the right people to be the chairman of the Fed, to be uh, the Treasury Secretary, and letting them do their job when it was easy to second guess everything because everybody was second guessing everything, including the people that were making the decisions. So a lot of, a lot of uh, inspiration by seeing President Bush up close, and the same with Hank Paulson. So President Bush, I would say the steadfastness, the clarity of his responsibility and his role in creating an environment where people could deal with the crisis. Um, he was such, so experienced at that point, so wise. And with Hank, 
I think the thing I learned most was his unbelievable ability to reprocess the decisions that were happening, see where he was making mistakes and correct. So he didn't look he didn't look backwards. We made we made there was lots of mistakes. It's impossible not to make mistakes in that situation. And the mistakes we process, learn the thing and make the next loop. And as a consequence, I think in a remarkable way, uh, he and others were able to navigate through a crisis that could have had profoundly devastating impact. I also have one more comment on that, which is that, and here we are more than 10 years later, if you'd have said to any of us in two, the fall of 2008, early 2009 when we left office, that we would be, the country would be where it is economically a decade later, with all the problems that we have, and there's plenty of problems, not, no one would have imagined it would be as good as it has been, and um, all of us would have said, we'll take that deal. Um, despite all the, you know, the negative consequences of growing, um, uh, you know, gap in opportunity and so forth, it's so much better than it might have been. So, Dave, now I want to ask you a couple lightning round questions, just qu quick answers. So, your first job? Well, for summers, I was uh, I was I baled hay and I uh, trimmed Christmas trees, and those were, you know, you could you could trim Christmas trees in the morning and bale hay in the afternoon, and those were those were the summer jobs which earned the most money. First political experience? You know, my dad was a, a college president um, at a little small state college in Pennsylvania. And so when I was growing up, the, um, uh, the politicians would come by uh, on homecoming day for the university because there was always a parade. And my parents would have a brunch before the football game. where the, So you'd have the local legislator and the local state senator. And every now and then, if you're really fortunate, the local congressman would come and so I remember seeing these figures uh, who would come by and shake hands and and uh, my dad always had to although he wasn't a political person always had to navigate the political people in the area because the university was such a an important part of the community uh, when and how did you first meet President Bush I first met him in the uh, when I was in the administration yeah I didn't I didn't meet him in the campaign and I think it was at the first year I, I was in the government in 2005 I think at the White House holiday party, and I came through and shook his hand, and uh, and then I got to really know him uh, when I worked for him as a Sherpa. Since you were a wrestler growing up, I have to ask this one: Who was your favorite professional wrestler? Were you a Hulk Hogan guy, or were you a Junkyard Dog? You can't oh, come even. On. That's not real. <laughs> you can't. You can't draw comparisons. <laughs> um, how about your favorite TV show? I think I know the answer. Billions? It's no. Like, oh God, no. It? I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't watch you probably that much time to, yeah. to watch TV. Um, the other question I'm curious about is, is how people disconnect at the end of the day. Do you keep the iPhone near you at night when you go to bed or do you keep it in a separate room and tr totally try and unplug? Yeah, I'm trying to be much more disciplined about unplugging. Uh, so I'm, tr uh, I'm finding uh, the, the further along I get my, my mindset in, in career has always been you got to work the hardest, work the longest. And I'm seeing the wisdom of not necessarily always doing that and actually having the, the, the chance to refresh a bit. And so I'm trying to disconnect in the evenings and read, read and do other things. Well, with, with six girls, you've, you've That's got, right. you've it's got hard. you're pretty busy with six home girls at the end of the day. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so I want to pivot to your transition from government. So after your time at Treasury, you ultimately leave and move to Bridgewater. Uh, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, Bridgewater is uh, the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, how did that come about? Because you weren't 
a business guy, finance guy beforehand. You didn't have an MBA, and, and you find yourself at the world's largest hedge fund. Yeah, that was a that was a um, unex, unexpected in the following sense. I got a call from a headhunter, uh, you know, within a week or two of leaving the government, and I said I, I can't talk about anything. Call me back in a couple months once I've had a chance to decompress a bit. And he called back and said, um, "You got. I want to tell you about Bridgewater, and they're looking for." Um, someone or a number of people who could potentially lead the company in, in the future. It's, you know, got this very um, iconic founder and so forth. And so I went up to visit, and I had lunch uh, with, uh, with Ray Dalio. And I remember calling my, my wife at the time in the car and saying, that's not, that's not, that place isn't for me. It's got a very distinctive culture. Our chemistry wasn't good. I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's gonna be a fit. And I'm I'm sure they won't call me back. And he called back, and uh, I went back up. And every time I went back up, I I got a little more intrigued. And the thing that um, caught my attention was first, really incredibly smart people, who were very insightful. The second was the culture, which um, is not for everybody for sure, but but was unique. And I, I had a sense that there was a huge integrity about it. So in other words, I wasn't confident I wouldn't get fired, but I was confident if I did get fired, it would be done <laughs> in a way where I would see it coming. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very direct place. I appreciate that. And then the thing that really stood out to me, as wonderfully successful as it had been, it wasn't a place that, uh, you know, really had a lot of leadership. And so I thought, boy, if I could make this place work, um, there might be a real opportunity for me. I, I sense that. And so I commuted for a year from Washington. I had four girls, and um, my, uh, my wife lived in Washington because I thought there was a decent chance it wouldn't work out. So I'd take the 6 a.m. Uh, shuttle on Monday, and I'd take the 6 p.m. shuttle back on Friday. And, uh, and I tried that for a year, and, you know, it started to seem like it, it was going to work, and, uh, and that's how it came about. You mentioned Bridgewater's culture, and the, the company is famous, and Ray Dalio is very famous for having radical transparency and, and the way he um, encourages very direct feedback, as you, you talked about, which seems kind of at odds for a guy who was in the military, came from very senior government positions, where to a certain extent it's top down. I mean, how did you deal with that transition? It had, it, for you personally, it had to have been a very tough transition. Well, you know, there was different pieces of my background that helped prepare me for that. And each I sort of took from the different places and chapters the thing that was most relevant. So the while the Army is very hierarchical, that being in the 82nd and an elite unit, there's that sort of orientation where we're trying to create this uniquely excellent investment organization. And part of being uniquely excellent is a culture that's focused on improvement and constant feedback, just like in a sports team, you know, in wrestling or in football. I was constantly getting feedback on the things that I could do to be more effective. I always wanted it. Mm -hmm. And if you start to think about uh, Bridgewater that way, then that part made sense. And um, and then the, the other thing um, that was really relevant was my, my time in the tech industry. Because while the military is hierarchical in government, it, the tech industry was not. So there had been a number of times uh, in my tech life where I'd had people, you know, come to me and say, "You're crazy. You're not doing a good job." Junior people. It's very. It was very much a culture where um, there was less hierarchy, and so the the absence of hierarchy, which is uh, like Bridgewater, and the app and the focus on sort of the toughness and the elite 
eliteness and the feedback, those things resonated with me. So it wasn't a perfect fit, but there was a lot that I valued, and, uh, and that gave me a good starting point. And today you're co-CEO of the firm. Uh, you share that responsibility with one of your colleagues. Uh, what's your day-to-day -day like? What are you focused on? What are the, the priorities for you as CEO of Bridgewater? Well, my day-to-day -day uh, falls in a couple buckets. Um, I spend a lot of time with clients. So I probably do a couple hundred client meetings or calls a year. So I'm on the road a lot. I spend a lot of time with clients. When they come, they come visit us a good bit. And our clients are huge institutional investors or sovereign wealth funds. And so we're helping them think about the world in general, how to think about their por portfolio. We're not just talking about what we do. We're talking about how to think about their, um, their overall challenges. So I spend a lot of time on that. I spend a lot of time on the day-to-day -day of managing. Who are the key people? How are they doing? What are their metrics? How are they doing relative to their responsibilities? Who do we need to hire? Who do we possibly need to fire? How are we putting the right Olympic gold medal team on the field? And, and do we think we're on track to win the gold medal? That's sort of the people orientation. Do we have the right succession behind those key people? That kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time on that. And then, you know, Bridgewater is a, an investing firm and it's a technology firm. So we're highly dependent on technology and our investment process is highly dependent on algorithmic, systematic decision making. So I spend a lot of time with our investment team and our uh, technology team, not as the investor, but as, as the overall manager who's ensuring that those areas are being managed well. That, those would be the main categories. Earlier on, you talked about the importance of mentors. You mentioned that Bob Kimmett was someone that had mentored you, especially when you were looking to move into government. Uh, now, you're probably on the other side of those conversations where you're getting approached for a lot of advice, especially people going in and out of government. You know, wh what's your advice to, to professionals today when they come to talk to you, especially about you know, a decision whether to go into government or what they should do when they come out? Yeah. Well, um, I've got a couple pieces of advice. And the one I would say the big thing I've learned the most is that the need for mentorship it doesn't go away the older you get. Um, the more experience I've had, the more I realize that the power comes from having more questions than answers, from focusing on what you don't know as opposed to what you know. And so to me, the most powerful person in the world is a person who is very confident in not knowing and is on an open-minded pursuit of figuring things out and learning. And so that applies to somebody at my point in their career. It applies to somebody 20 years later, and it applies to that 25 or 30-year-old person um, or you know, somebody earlier in their career. And so that's the first, first piece of advice. The second piece of advice I try to give is you know, be really clear about the thing you're looking for. In other words, what are, the, what are you trying to optimize? Are you trying to optimize um, a certain set of skills? Are you trying to optimize who you're working for or with? Are you trying to optimize the kind of business you're in. Um, my experience has been that the who, the who matters more than the what. In other words, the who, the people you're with, the quality of their character, the quality of their thinking, their commitment to you is the long pole in the tent. That's the most important thing. And if you, if you strive to have that first and foremost, then other things f sort of fall into place. But I find that people aren't clear on exactly what it is they want, and so they may want something different than I'm suggesting, but being clear on that is a really important thing because things rarely come in the package that exactly that you're expecting, and being clear on the most important thing helps discern 
um, and prioritize among the opportunities you have. Yeah, one of the, the traits that that I see or one of the things I, I talk to people about is you have to be willing to adapt a little bit. And this seems something that you've done incredibly well with your career, where if you go to an organization or take a job, you're not exactly sure how it's going to end. And, and you need to be willing to try different things and take on different roles at a company, especially if you stay some, some, somewhere for 10 years. Uh, you know, comment a little bit about on your ability to ad- adapt. And, and maybe this goes back to your military training, but it seems like uh, over the years, it's been a, a critical characteristic for you. Yeah, I think I think I I think I have f- figured out the different places I've gone. Although um, I think part of that is knowing um, and going into it, knowing that um, you know you may make good choices, you may make bad choices. You want to make the best informed choices you can make, but sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't work out, and that's okay. So you don't have to have uh, you don't have to have such a concern about it not being perfect, because if it's not perfect, um, you ultimately can go do something else. And having the courage and the confidence to know that it, it may not work out, and therefore be able to make bets and to make choices, is really key. So if you sort of <laughs> a funny thing my dad and I share is that at every single choice, I mean without an exception, he thought I was making the wrong career choices said, how could you leave the military? You're not going to get a pension. Um, you know, how could you? And so this, and the difference between the him and I was not that I was making necessarily good choices. It was that I wasn't, I wasn't really afraid that it wouldn't work because it wasn't that I thought it would work. It was that I wasn't afraid that it didn't, that it wouldn't work. And that was a key with Bridgewater. That was a key with free markets. Um, that was a key really going into the government is knowing that um, it's not always going to work out and that's okay. And um, the most important thing is that you're seeking opportunity to contribute and make a difference and work with people and uh, make, you know, make a contribution that you really feel good about. The other component that seems critical is one's sort of professional network and, and how over time in the course of your different jobs, one kind of builds relationships. And when I was talking to a few of our mutual friends before this discussion, one of them commented, Dave knows everyone. And to me, that's just a comment on your ability when you're in these different organizations to continually learn, try and meet more people and kind of bring them into your circle. How, how do you and a lot of people don't do this consciously. It just kind of happens. But how do you stay connected? How do you think about kind of building that that type of professional network? Because that's critically important for people, too. Yeah, I think the most important thing I would say about the relationships is authenticity. And so, you know, my ability to keep up with my friendships is not, um, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it becomes overwhelming sometimes because you have so much, so many different um, relationships you've built over the years. But in the moment and when I subsequently connect, I feel like that it's truly authentic. So let's take us for exa- as an example. I mean, we've talked probably a handful of times in the last 10 years, but I think we have a friendship and it was based on an authentic friendship we had then. It wasn't based on you know, you looking for anything or me looking for anything or thinking that you'd be able to help me or I'd be helping you, it was based on the fact that there's a real friendship there. And I think that the relationships that have helped me most, in quotation marks, from a networking perspective, um, were not created on the basis of thinking they would help me most from a networking perspective. They were based on truly authentic relationships. And that's the way I think about them. And I think that people feel that. And so you can imagine how many times in your life have you encountered people where you're talking to them and you can see them looking over your shoulder to the next person they're going to talk to. 
I think people feel that and they sense it. And I, I, I certainly hope that I'm not that way. I'm, uh, yeah, it's one of the, uh, another comment from someone who worked for you said, Dave is a really good listener. And I think that goes to what you're saying is that you, you do try and make that connection and, and be authentic, which people do feel. Um, just a couple of questions now before we wrap up, Dave. Um, you obviously have a very busy life. You've got uh, six kids, you're traveling, you're co-CEO of Bridgewater, you do a number of things in your your personal time outside of the office. How do you balance your day? You know, any any sort of secrets to keeping you focused? Uh, well, I, I've got a couple, but, um, you know, I guess it's probably different for everybody. Exercise has been a central part of, of it for me for the last 35 years um, where I pretty much try to exercise most days. I might miss a day a week, but that, it, and it starts in the morning and that sort of gets me grounded for the day and I think really helps. Um, that's one. The second is that um, I've tried to learn and I'm not perfect, but I've tried to learn to meditate a bit. And I know that uh, will maybe surprise some of my friends because it's uh, it w- they wouldn't think of me that way, but that ability to take a little time every day um, has been a really valuable thing, particularly when things are really at their at their most intense. And then the third thing, which gives me a lot of consistency and, and pleasure, is that uh, with all those kids and everything else, um, I take every phone call. There's nothing like from every kid, like I, no matter what. Now I tell them, don't call me unless you need me. But just knowing that I'm connected to my family at any moment and that. If a kid needs me, I'm going to pick up the phone, and I do. So it probably a day doesn't go by that I don't step out of something and and take that phone call. Um, I try to be careful. I don't want to be annoying to the people I'm with. But having that clarity that that's the most important thing and that if they need me, I'm going to pick up the phone, it's sort of is a, it's a little bit of a stabilizer in terms of making sure that you've got your prioritization. So it's right. interesting because my kids – don't ever call me. They're all texting me. I'm getting these yeah. like buzzes. Or, going yeah. off no, call or text. No, call or text. Especially with six girls. Yeah. I'm sure there's lots of call, call or text. You're right. Call or text. Uh, you've obviously had a very, very successful career. Um, talk about one time where things didn't go your way. There was a, a setback. How you dealt with that. How you recovered from it. Pivoted. Well, things didn't go that great at Bridgewater to start with. So the history of this... Um, which I don't think I've actually really t- ever talked about publicly, but the history of this was I came in, Ray was thinking about making this transition. I was about 18 months in. He had a protege that had been there for a long time. And he, he called me one day about 18 months into it and said, I want to make you and Greg the co-CEOs. So this was in 2011, something like that. And that that lasted for about a year, a year and a half. And then he came back and said, uh, I don't think you're doing a good enough job. I I want to, I want to come back in. So I basically got, I got fired um, as the CEO, and I went into a job as the as the president, which had a particular outward focus, and I spent, um, yeah, I spent four, you know, the next four or five years or four years doing that. I thought about leaving, um, and you know, I kept, and I, even in retrospect, felt like there was some unfairness about that and the way the way that uh, Ray had handled it. But at the same time, there was a lot of truth in what he was saying. And um, I'm not sure I was ready 
to lead the company at that time, and I'm not sure he was ready not to lead the company at that time. And so, um, so I, you know, I started to get my groove back and uh, and sort of really think about what I wanted to do, and I uh, ultimately um, came back uh, as CEO a couple years ago. And that experience was was certainly the most public failure at a pretty high level that I had ever had. Uh, but it was also probably the most meaningful experience I ever had because it really sort of forces you to test your mettle and ask yourself what, what it is you're really trying to do and why you're trying to do it. And so it's a little bit why I go back to the, you know, don't be afraid mm-hmm. because ultimately, you know, there's very few people, certainly there's very few people of consequence that have made a big difference in the world that haven't failed. In fact, I can't think of one who has been flawless without significant failure at different points. And if you sort of take the big picture on that failure, it can be a real engine for reflection, self-improvement, um, and helping you really figure out where, where you want to be and who you want to be. And so um, that's one for the books. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, and obviously, Bridgewater has been incredibly successful. You had a good year last year. How are you thinking about sort of 2019, the next next couple of years from a Bridgewater perspective? And then last question I want to ask you is 10 years from now, you know, what is it that you would like to have accomplished? What's kind of next on your your to do list, either professionally or or personally? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the way Bridgewater invests, we, we call it fundamental, systematic and diversified. Those are sort of the, the, the key watchwords. And the, the key way to think about it is uh, I'm not much of a golfer, but think about the golf swing versus the golf shot. So essentially what we're trying to do is consistently um, make a series of bets. No single bet is that big of a deal, but a series of bets that are gonna have a winning percentage where we're gonna consistently make money over time. And there's a a cone of expectations and performance that we'll get during that period. And we typically do better when things are a little more volatile, but in any case, um, that getting that swing right getting that batting average right is, is sort of the key thing. And at any point in time, that may lead to good results or bad results. But over time, if we get that swing right, it'll lead to, to consistently good results. So last year, we ended up having good good results. And this year, we, we hope to have good results. But it's very much around a cone of expectations where we just want to make sure the golf swing is good and that we're consistently learning and uh, and getting better. And, uh, and so that really relates to your second question, which is my hope and goal, which is to be able to help make this transition really successful. So you've got this iconic founder who, um, who has now stepped out. And, you know, if you look historically, many of these iconic companies, when you have uh, an iconic founder steps out and the, and, the, and the business starts to fail and they can't keep the culture and they lose the great people and so forth. And so in my mind, to be able to maintain the success of the enterprise. It'll be different than when Ray was the CEO, but hopefully it'll be different in, in good ways and we'll keep the essence of what made it so great. And if I could be able to do that, lead that transition for the next however many years and have it, and, and then turn it over to the next generation, that would be something I'd be proud of. Uh, at some point, will we see Dave McCormick back in politics? Well, I hope so. I mean, I, a public life of some kind. I hope, uh, I mean, I think that... Uh, Every, everything sort of happens for a reason. That's the way I, I'm a little bit fatalistic about that. And um, I feel like I'd love the opportunity to to serve in some way again, to contribute in some way again, uh, beyond 
beyond Bridgewater and beyond the, the other things I do outside of Bridgewater. And so, you know, there's lots of things outside my control, but, um, but if I have, if I'm, if I'm able to influence that, I certainly hope so. Well, Dave, thank you for joining me. I wish you'd continued success and good luck at, at work with your family. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank, Thank you, you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This show was produced by Sarah Langauer.